host, Nick Jaworski. We bring you the business of recovery because those struggling with addiction need you to be here tomorrow as well as today. Thank you for joining me here on the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, CEO of Circle Social Inc., a strategic marketing firm for behavioral health care providers. Today, we're speaking with Michelle Santagata. She is an expert in call center builds and operations. But before we hear from her, let's hear from our sponsors, ERP Health. Outcome tracking is made easy with ERP Health. ERP Health is the U.S. standard outcome tracking platform to deliver measurement-based care for behavioral health. Their products are equipped with tools to improve population health, enhance the experience and outcomes of patients, and reduce the cost of care in our communities. Tracking outcomes to individualize treatment and deliver measurement-based care benefits both providers and patients. You can visit erphealth.com to learn more and book a demo today. So Michelle is one of my favorite people in the industry. As many listeners know, it's extremely hard to find really, really high-level experts in this field uh, across a variety of roles. And so fortunately here at Circle Social, just being as involved in the industry and knowing everyone as we do, it's very easy for us to know and identify some of the best in terms of who they are and what they're good at, whether it's business development, call centers, back-end operations, executive level management, marketing, et cetera. And so we work with a number of really high caliber individuals across the country for different projects on the consulting end of the business where I spend a lot of my time. And Michelle is one of the best that we've ever worked with. She's helped us on a number of projects and she's phenomenal. And then she also runs her own consulting business. She's done call center operations for a couple decades. She's run 100-person call centers, both here in the healthcare space as well as abroad, and just has a fascinating background in terms of what she's done. And she's really, really good in everything related to strategic systems, processes, and operations, training of the team to be as effective as possible on the phone, and doing all of the technical integrations for tracking purposes from call tracking metrics to Salesforce and back. So she's a phenomenal resource. I really appreciate everything that she's been able to do with us and very excited to have her on and be able to share her expertise with all of you today. So with that, let's jump in. Hi, Michelle. Really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show today. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your experience with call centers? Absolutely. Uh, First of all, thanks so much for having me, Nick. I appreciate it. I have been working in call centers, growing them, scaling them, running them for almost a decade and a half. I work with small teams of five to 10 people, up to hundreds and thousand seat call centers, I've been in the the healthcare space and the behavioral healthcare space for about the last five years. So I mostly help healthcare call centers with their people, process, and technology, making sure that all those things are efficient and people are executing. I'd just like to hear a little bit about some of the interesting experience if, if you're open to sharing it. But you've done, obviously, you've worked with a lot of behavioral health providers in a couple of different roles. Obviously, you help us out and we work together on call centers from time to time. But you've also ran call centers, for example, like in the Philippines. Do you want to maybe talk about that experience a little bit? That's just interesting. Yeah, um, it was great. I traveled a lot to the Philippines for a 
about a year, I did a lot of traveling to the Philippines. Great people, great country, and bringing up a call center very far away from where your home base is and where your maybe brick and mortar call center is, is definitely a unique thing. It takes a lot of effort. Um, it takes a lot of patients having dedicated. So I had like dedicated reps. So they were a dedicated call center that only worked for my company. And it's just such a unique experience and it's not for every industry. So I think that, you know, like when I got into the behavioral healthcare space and I was thinking about, I'm looking at you know, the company I was working for and we need some help with answering some of the calls and some rollover, you always want some kind of backup and, and a strategic partner to make sure you're answering all of your calls. That's just safety in call centers. And I primarily use the Philippines and Costa Rica and Mexico and Dominican Republic and all of these places near shore and offshore. And it's just the trade-off didn't feel quite right. Um, like that was going to work out because there's always some sort of degradation in your performance when you use an outsource partner like that. Yeah, we've literally had treatment providers where you come in and they're outsourcing calls to like India or something like that. Craziest thing I've ever seen. We've only seen it a yeah. handful of times, but I mean, it just, they're like, well, our marketing's not working. I'm like, yeah, there's definitely room for improvement here, but really your call center is killing you. <laughs> right, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, you have to understand that there is going to be a degradation. There's going to be a difference in the performance when you outsource versus you have your own people working for your company. It doesn't matter if you travel to that. I used to travel to the Philippines all the time, training, doing all the things. I had other people go in there. I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot of work. And even doing that, it's still not as good. It's just not going to be as good. Um, there's cultural differences in the way that they approach conversations with other people and take directions and things like that. So it's, it's very difficult. It's very difficult to get. I've never been able to get an outsourced partner perform better than my internal team ever. So that's a difficult thing right then and there. And so understanding that there's going to be a difference in metrics, if you're doing it as a cost savings measure, you need to make sure that, that that checks out, right? That the amount that I'm saving, I can also lose that amount of revenue and I'm still net positive. It still makes sense for me. It's just such interesting experience. I mean, I spend a lot of time abroad and I've built a lot of businesses or helped build businesses there. And I spent a lot of time in China and we would have all these businesses. Even when I was working in China, I would get contacted by random companies and like, we want to open up a program in China or we want to move over here and open a Woofy and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yes. I'm like the, the cost savings that you get from having the cheaper labor cost do not outweigh the cultural challenges that you're going to have here, the government bureaucracy that you're going to struggle with, and the degradation in the quality, whether it's a support center or whether it's manufacturing. It's just completely different. And then people come in with like these leadership styles and like, oh, well, we hired a, you know, an Asian American, Chinese American to come and run the company. And right. like they're pretty much American. Like they grew up in America. They lived in America. They're basically American. They don't fit in here the same way just because that's their background. And so you have these people come in with like servant leadership, for example, you know, which is obviously really popular in the U S 
it does not work in China. China is a very hierarchical culture. And if you try to ask your team questions or get their opinion, they assume that you're a weak leader that doesn't know what you're doing and they will leave because they want to work for a strong leader. You know, I mean, just simple things like that where people don't understand these massive cultural differences. So anyway, we're getting off track, but it's a fascinating <laughs> it's topic. It's interesting, so. yeah. <laughs> Anyway, so, okay, coming back to the call center is really interesting here. And, and what I want to dig into with your experience is call center is not just training the team to answer the phone better, right? There are workflows, there is data management, there's quality assurance, there's technology integration. So can you just talk a little bit about the different aspects of managing a good call center? Sure. So the training is definitely important. You have to be able to train people to answer the calls. They should be prepared to answer the calls. There's an entire infrastructure. It's not just throw some people on the phones and tell them how to answer calls. You need to create an environment where they have the, the reps are informed. They have access to information that they're going to need on calls and that their workflow is as efficient as it can possibly be. They're not in 14 systems, clicking 75 checkboxes everywhere. That's going to make it extremely inefficient. That's going to delay care for the patient, which you obviously don't want. Um, and then your systems that's holding and supporting all of this up. What does your phone system look like? How many reps do you have? And what type of phone system do you need for the amount of reps that you have? And then what does your CRM look like? How do all these systems integrate to, with each other? And I talk a lot about systems and having good systems, but there's good systems. And then there's the right system for your company and for where you're trying to go and where it is right now. And then the it's ongoing training and development. Training is not a one thing you do. And then I trained them, they're done. There needs to be continuous monitoring and one-on-ones and improvement. And so that's usually through a QA program. So building out a QA program, that's robust. And so a QA program will normally look like I have a scorecard. That scorecard is measuring certain things that I want to have happen on the calls. And I don't just get the scorecard and start grading people. I communicate to the team, this is this is what you're going to be held accountable to. This is how you meet these metrics. And you're trying to drive behavior, right? You want them to do well on the calls and get the results that you want. And so when people put together QA programs and use them in a punitive way, like gotcha kind of thing, that usually doesn't work out well. You should be using QA as a tool to help people achieve the results that you're looking to achieve. And also having results and KPIs and goals and holding the team and individuals accountable to those, those results. It's a lot of, it's a lot going on. It's much, much more complicated than just put some people on the phones. It is. It is very complicated. And the reality is that most providers simply just put people on the phones, right? They, or the systems that they've built have been kind of hodgepodge over time based on need. They went from five to 10 to 50 reps. Things got added on here and there. And then you just got a bunch of gobbledygook at the end of the day where nothing's talking to itself. Training processes were built five years ago for a small team. Right. Uh, it's very messy, very fast. So you mentioned a lot of really great, like high level initiatives there. Let's start looking into the, the nitty gritty and drilling down a bit. So first off, you mentioned that scorecard and obviously it's going to be slightly different for different providers potentially, but what are some basic components of a good scorecard for QA for reps? Yeah. So what, 
first off, when I think about a scorecard, it, like I could tell you what what the things should be, but really they have to they do have to be very specific to the goals of your organization because if you start measuring it and grading it, you're going to drive that result. So you really do need to think about what are we asking people to do. So when I'll give you an example, when you ask somebody, you have a script and you they need to stay exactly on script. Okay. And then they're held accountable to that. And then now maybe they're not meeting their performance goals because they're not staying on script. And then at the end of the day, you start listening to calls and you're like, everybody sounds robotic. Well, yeah, because you started making them stick to an exact script. And so, so you drove that behavior. So I like to have things like, how do you want the, we'll start with the greeting that they have to have a certain greeting. I like to have consistent greeting. It should be warm and it should be consistent to have kind of that consistency throughout the team, no matter what caller or patient reaches out, they're gonna get that same kind of feeling. So a greeting, then the flow, the call flow, there should be a certain flow that happens in the calls and there should be certain components that need to happen on every call, data gathering. Uh, maybe I need to say something specific. Maybe I have to say a, a HIPAA, statement, HIPAA compliance statement. Um, There's certain things that need to be said there. And then we've got like soft skills. So how did you do expressing empathy on the call? How did you do connecting with the caller? How did you make the caller feel heard? Did you get the background and understand what's really going on and kind of dig deeper into why, what made them reach out today? Why did they call today? Those things are really important. And I always like to throw in a, did they use good judgment? That's like one of my favorite questions to put on a QA card. And what I use that for is because when, when you do have a QA program, sometimes you have agents and reps that are doing things because they feel like they have to for QA. Oh, I have to read the, these steps for QA or something like that. And then they overlook the overarching good judgment that needs to happen on a call. Like when something has to happen different and you have to go off script in order to solve that person's problem and, and do what needs to be done in that call, that's using good judgment. And so it's a very gray area, I understand, but it also allows reps to have that feeling of like, oh, I'm supposed to actually use my judgment and make decisions based on that during the call and not just sound like a robot. I like that one. I'm glad you brought up the soft skills because it's obviously so important. It's just shocking how often they're lacking, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you listen to a call and it sounds robotic or they're annoyed or frustrated or it's just purely yeah. transactional. You know, these people having these very emotional experiences on the phone and say, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Could you please give me your insurance number? It's like, mm -hmm. is that really what you're, right. how you're trying to come across? But they have to be taught that. It's, it's not easy to do, and it's not easy to do through repetition, right? I'm taking 50 calls a day. I'm saying the same thing. It's actually worse. Robotic. Yeah, it could, yeah, it could definitely have the contrary effect because if you're just, they're getting inundated with calls and there's no training and there's no support happening through a QA program, through coaching, through, in, you know, ongoing development, they're just taking back-to-back -back calls and getting burnt out. And sometimes you do hear that frustration because they are frustrated. They don't want to take the next call. They're burnt out. And that that will absolutely come through on the phone. Absolutely. So let's look at, dig a little bit deeper into the data. So there's basic data and reporting flows that should go to the director of admissions. So what's your recommendation in terms of what data the director of admissions should be looking at? And then how should they be getting that data to them? 
Great question. So they should definitely be looking at, I mean, you should know overall call volume. Any director of admission should be able to quote, we get 3,500 calls a month. They should know that. I like to look at data. I like to look at calls, leads, appointments, admits. So calls, leads, qualified lead, if you want to call that, uh, or opportunities. I'm sorry, I said appointments. I meant opportunities. The calls, leads, opportunities, and, and admits. And you should have good counts on all of those things. You should understand your call volume by day, by week, by month. You should understand your lead volume by day, by week, by month, all of those things. And then you should understand it and have it sent to you um, like broken down by rep. How many calls is a rep taking on a day, a week, a month? How many calls are you getting from various marketing sources? How many calls are you getting very, through various channels? Channels meaning voice, chat, SMS, form fill. You should really understand all of that volume. You know, we can talk about conversions and metrics, but understanding the volume, where stuff is coming from, that's going to allow you to pick out when things are going wrong. If you only are looking at like month to date data and you know, okay, month to date, we got 3,500 calls. If you're not looking at that daily call volume in, in a very like uh, intentional way, I used to get stuff emailed to me daily in my inbox. So I would recommend whether it's a report that's compiled by an analyst or somebody, or you're getting it straight from your call tracking, or maybe maybe you got things really great and you have some kind of BI going on, but somewhere where it's sent to you daily and you are taking a look at that daily, and it doesn't have to take long, five minutes in your morning and consuming that data to understand because what that's going to allow you to do is know when things start to go wrong before it's gone wrong too long. So if I normally see we get 20 qualified leads a day and then I'm starting to see 10, 5, 3, 2, something's wrong. And I might not know that if I'm just looking at like monthly volume. I might not pick up on that until a little bit of time's gone by. So just really looking at data and volume, calls, leads, opportunities of admissions, and slicing that up in a way that you're looking at parts of the whole to be able to see trends when they happen. And then also, what would be your recommendation around looking at those overall aggregate numbers as well as like breaking down per rep? Absolutely. So you want to look at the team as a whole and then then be looking at per rep and just reps in general on average, right? On average, my reps take X amount of calls during these days. Um, you can, I mean, the amount of the amount of data I could honestly tell you that you should look at in a call center. I, I had environments where I would get this daily report sent to me. It had 25 tabs on it. It had, I mean, so much data that I would get on a daily basis because there is so much data to consume. I could go on and on about the things that you should look at and can look at, you know, the percent of time that your team is occupied, occupancy rate. There's a lot of different things that you could look at, but yeah, definitely um, looking at broken down by those small parts, but then also all together. Month to date, year to date, you should be looking at it in a variety of different ways. That's again, the only way that you're going to pick up on trends. How are we doing month over month, year over year, week over week? That's that's the only way that you're going to know what's what's really going on. So you mentioned a couple key metrics that you're looking at to say, hey, is there a red flag here for the day or for the month? What about per wrap? Like when you look at common areas for improvement, you know, in the work that you're doing, what do you normally see as common areas where most reps tend to need a little bit of help? 
Um, it's usually on, you know, there should be a call flow and the call flow should be about pushing the call forward and controlling the call. The rep should be controlling the call. They should be in the driver's seat. And that's what I see a lot of times that they're not. Mom calls up, mom's got a bunch of questions. She asks all the questions, the rep answers and pauses for mom to ask another question. We get into a Q and A period. Mom says, thanks so much. I'll call you back if I need anything. And we didn't get any lead information. So that's, that's something that I see very commonly. And, and what happens here is, you know, a little bit of the metric side of things, you know, you need to be looking at conversions and conversions mean different things to different people. Some people will say, oh, my close rate there, you know, this reps close rate is 50%. Close, close rate of what? What are we talking about? So really understanding what we're talking about. Oh, uh, you know, VOBs to, to close. Okay. That could be 50%, but there's a lot of steps in the process. So I look at inquiries to admits, which is what I call a gross conversion rate. So that's inquiries is call, form fill, chat, any way that they can contact you and then admits. So I want to know of all the stuff you got, whether it was good, bad, or indifferent, what did you get out of it? And what that does is tells me overall and by rep overall, it gives me a good benchmark to compare. And, and in what I do, it gives me a good benchmark to compare apples to apples. And you can compare yourself to other organizations and understand where that's at, because you may have different steps in the process and different conversions along the way, but that kind of gross overall will give you a good sense of what's happening. Uh, and that should be between one and 3% easily. Uh, it depends on, you know, if you're a Medicaid provider, if you had a ton of net, in network contracts, those it, it's all going to depend on levels of care and those things. But in that example, if my, uh, of the 50% close rate, if you have a 50% close rate on your VOB to, to um, admits, but your calls to leads, meaning every time you take a call, how often are you putting a lead in the CRM is, 2%, you know, because you're only putting leads in the CRM when you're sure you're going to close them. Your close rate looks fantastic, but you're not doing a great job putting leads in the funnel. And you have leads and then qualified leads and VOB and financially, you know, approved. And then maybe they're admitting. I look at every step in that, every step in that as a conversion. And you need to be looking at it in your department as a whole and individually, because and anytime you make tweaks, there might be a tweak to one of those conversions, it impacts the other. But again, that kind of gross overall inquiry to admit should be kind of staying the same um, or, or, or improving uh, and as you're making tweaks in there. But the, the, that kind of call or inquiry to lead conversion is the thing I see the most. Not putting enough leads into the CRM because we're not uh, controlling the call. We're not addressing and redirecting, which is mom asks a question. I say, yep, we, we're an adolescent program and we treat people from ages 11 to 17. Tell me a little bit about what's going on. I addressed the question, I did not pause, and I redirected to asking mom about what's going on with them. And that way we can continue the conversation, move it forward, and now I'm going to try to move them to see if it's a qualified lead and put some information in the CRM. So two points there that are just excellent. Number one is understanding all those numbers and how you have your final kind of goal that you're really critiquing everyone on, which is probably conversion rate or admissions. 
And then there's all the leading indicators before that. And long time ago, I mean, I spent three years working in a call center as a rep and you can game that system a hundred different ways. You know, if they're saying, hey, we want conversions, you know, well, yeah, we can decide who we're putting into the system and who we're not putting into the system, right? So that changes your conversion rate. And so you really have to, as a director of admissions, be on top of all those metrics to understand the leading indicators that lead up to that final result to make sure that people aren't gaming it. And that's why your your scorecards are so important. That's why your um, training is so important to make sure that people are getting the support they need. And then they understand the mission as well as any financial incentives that might be in play. Absolutely. The other part that you brought up was the going back really to the soft skills. Can't tell you how many calls I listen to when the rep, yeah, they just answer the questions and they stop. I mean, it's probably one of the most common mistakes. Every rep should be ending their part of the conversation with another question. And then that question allows them to direct the conversation. Such a lost opportunity. But again, in this space, so many people don't get training, right? There's no onboarding process. There's no ongoing QA. And so it's hard for reps to learn. I think the other one that I see really consistently, I don't know if you see it on your end too, is transactional. And that pairs with unempathetic, right? right. So they're just saying, hey, give me the information. This is the information I'm supposed to get to get from you. Okay, thank you for the information. We'll call you back. There's no empathy in that conversation. And it sounds transactional because it is. And so as a family member or as a potential patient, I don't think you care for me. I don't think you're interested in what's going on with me. I'm absolutely going to call the next provider on my list of five that I'm working through right now. You know, if you didn't build a relationship. So what about your thoughts on that? Yeah, I definitely hear that a lot. Definitely hear the transactional. And I I think it comes from either the lack of training they're burnt out because you're exposed to this all day, every day. So somebody telling you their, their very sad story about what's going on in their family, you hear it all the time. And so you almost become numb to it when in reality, we need to treat every single call. Like it's the only call you've taken all day because that family member or that person reaching out for help deserves your attention. And this is about them and their story. And if, just like you said, they don't feel that then they're moving on to the next one. And this is what providers really need to understand. You have one call. You have that one call or one chat or whatever it is to make an impact because there's dozens of people right behind you that are on that Google search search results that this person is going to go call if they don't like the response that they got. So if you're listening to your calls, or if you're not listening to your calls, I would recommend listening to them. But if you're listening to your calls and that first call doesn't sound like something warm that that you would want to hear if you were calling for your loved one, but that's going to change. Immediate, got it has to change and it has to be different because they deserve, the families and the, the help seekers deserve our respect and deserve that care and concern. And it's just going to make so much of a difference, so much. And I want to know, I so rarely hear it, I want to know why they're calling today. And that reason for the call is not that they just want treatment, right? right? Like, really, why are you calling today? What made you pick up the phone? What happened in your life that you said, today's the day I need to get myself or a family member treatment? And so many reps don't get to the bottom of that. Right. Understanding like, why was like, why is enough enough today? Why did it get to that point? And sometimes there is that, that kind of trigger thing that happened. You know, I, I'm 
on probation, I might go back to jail or my family's threatened to kick me out or whatever the thing is. And also that's helpful information for you to have to understand the complexity of the family and what's going on and maybe what this person is looking for out of treatment. Like, yes, you're looking to go to treatment to, to um, you know, stop your addiction, to stop whatever's going on in your life or help with your mental health to be able to live a new life. But like, what does that look like for you? What do you want? What are the goals? What can you look forward to after treatment? And, and, and kind of paint that picture for them so that they can see that because when they're in the throes of what's going on in their life right now, it doesn't seem, seem possible. It doesn't seem like you can see out of that. And they really need to feel and understand that it is possible for them to want to come and be motivated to come to treatment. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay, let's go back to building and scaling a call center here. So let's say that you're starting off, you're smaller and you, you, know, you got like four reps or something, and then you're trying to expand to 10 and then beyond 10. In your experience, what changes as you start to get bigger and bigger and add on more, more reps to do more call volume? Yeah. When, when there's, when you're smaller, when you're, when you have the three and four reps, I mean, arguably you want to be efficient at any level, right? Arguably when you have less people, of course, you want to be as efficient as possible because you have to do more with less, but there's certain things that a small team can kind of get away with. You can kind of get away with, we're four people, we've been here a while, we know the answers to the questions, we don't need any of this written down, we don't need a knowledge base, we don't need, there's there's certain things that you can sort of get away with that you absolutely can't get away with when you start to scale. Answering phones, you know, answering calls on cell phones, things like that. Yeah, okay, you've got a, an admissions rep that also does BD that's on the road and they're answering calls from the cell phone. Okay, again, might work when you're small, but as you start to scale, you have to think about is what I'm doing right now scalable and you have to start fixing those things. First, be able to identify that and then be able to fix those things before you start getting to 10, 15, 20 people or else you're going to start busting at the seams people are going to be overwhelmed. They're going to quit. It's just going to be too much. And so the stuff that you want to look at is your call and your phone system. Is it, a do I have the right system to use for the scale that I am and where I'm trying to grow? And, and how do you know that? Is it giving me the right data I need? Do I have the analytics to the depth that I need it? Am I able to answer questions like what's my missed call rate? What's my agent occupancy rate? And that might be, you know, you might need to know that at varying levels, but do I, can I get the data I need out of it? And then what does the call delivery look like? What, what I mean by that is how am I able to route calls to reps depending on day, time, whatever it is? Is it sophisticated enough? Do I have a sophisticated enough automation and dialer to be able to, you know, maybe call back my missed calls automatically or do things like that that create, again, automation, less reliance on reps having to remember things. If you remember one thing, it could be that scalable is the opposite of reps remembering things. You want them to have to remember the least amount of things possible and to have the, the tools do as much for them as possible so that their sole focus is to just communicate with the person over the phone. So another thing with the phone systems is if you're you're growing, you got a, you know, you got a phone system. I'm a fan of CTM. A lot of people use it. You have CTM and then you tack on chat. 
right? So you, and then now you got a different system for chat and then now you're doing SMS and now you get a different system. So you've got all these different systems. Once you start to grow, that again, becomes less and less scalable. It's just not realistic when you have a large team that you're trying to divvy up this work to when the work is in all different platforms. So having more of a kind of enterprise contact center solution that's multiple channels, meaning call chat, you know, voice chat, SMS, all of those different channels in one place and giving you some robust reporting. And then we've got like CRM systems. So when you're small, like, do you, I love Salesforce. Do you need Salesforce? No, you shouldn't get Salesforce if you have, you know, one rep and you're just starting out. Do not waste your money on Salesforce. Again, love them. If there's anybody's listening, please, I love you. But you shouldn't be getting Salesforce with that amount of people. It's just the ROI is not going to be there. And that's what you need to look at is you might want to invest in state-of-the-art technology meant for enterprise teams, but if you're not an enterprise team, is the ROI going to be there? Does it make sense for you to get that yet? At some point, it's going to make sense, um, but when you're smaller, maybe not right now. And also understanding as you scale, getting, I said this before, but it's, it's a really important point, getting the right system for your team. Do not get a system because it's what everyone else is using. Don't get a system just because, oh, well, it's already, you know, on this other platform or you get, make sure you are analyzing what your needs are and that you are getting a solution that solves the problems that you, your business has, or, you know, has solved as many uh, of the problems or creates as many solutions as you could possibly need. So it's, it's, it, and it gets just more complex as you grow larger and want repeatable, scalable processes. I think a great example was the fact that you have to start integrating more systems. And so you talked about the form fills, the direct calls, the chats. I mean, we have clients that convert their form fills at 30% in the mm -hmm. aggregate on average because the form fills are so valuable. But I'd say overall, looking across clients nationally, the vast majority have a terrible system for answering form fills. They go mm -hmm. into some like generic group email box at the call center and people respond to them like randomly after like two hours, three hours, right. a day later, two days later, where again, we've got clients converting 30% of those because they answer them within two or three minutes max. So yeah, if you don't have your systems and processes set up appropriately and if you're making it more difficult for your reps, you're losing out on a lot of potential patients and, and people who need help just because your, your systems and processes aren't right. Yeah. And it's poor, it's a poor experience for the agents and the reps. And what that's going to translate is a poor experience for your patients and your callers and right. people trying to reach out because it's going to delay connecting them with care, it's going to delay them. And, and the, the faster you can do that, the faster you can go from first call to admission, the higher the conversion rate is going to be. You're not going to lose yeah. them in the, you know, in the shuffle and like, you know, stuff's going to happen and they're going to get tied up at work and now they don't want to commit anymore. You know, the more time that passes, the more excuses can happen. So you want yeah. that window to be really, really short and having systems that are just and processes and a lot of things that are kind of all over the place and disconnected doesn't, doesn't let you do that as quick as possible. Yeah. I mean, we've gotten into a clients where their average time from initial call to admission is five days, mm -hmm. five days. I mean, you know how many patients they lose when they're not able to get people in because they're not calling them back. They're not following up. There's just not good tracking in the system. It's a terrible experience and people call somewhere else and they go somewhere else or 
or even worse, they they change their mind and decide not to get treatment. Right. And and that's what the that's what the the really sad part of it is, is that people can, because you're not getting back to them, people can decide, you know what, I wasn't meant to do this. And then they decide not to get treatment at all. And that's, that's really unfortunate. Well, they definitely want you to bring up, I guess, is uh, soft phones. So soft phones, headphones, and outbound calls. Can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I'm a fan, right? So Having, you know, answering calls on your cell phones, like I said, when you're small and you're kind of a dual role, BD admissions, yeah, that might work. But at some point, you need reps in front of a computer with their systems up, working on a soft phone with a noise canceling headset and really focused on the job at hand. That's what it should be. That's that's what it should be. And having a soft phone, you know, utilizing like, again, I'm just going to use call tracking metrics as an example. We're all familiar with it. So call tracking metrics, they have a soft phone and there's a lot of automation and a lot of things that can be done through the soft phone that is really beneficial. It's really, really beneficial. And people don't use them. People use a fraction of the functionality that's out there for systems they're already paying for. So you've got, and, and, doing your outbound calls and your follow-up on soft phones and having that connected to your CRM and reporting that data back to your CRM so you can have visibility and understand who's, you know, what leads have been followed up on. How many times have we followed up on them? And that shouldn't necessarily be on the rep to be putting all of that data in. You have systems that have that capability to put that in there for you, to be able to write that data to a place where you can make it really easy for them. So it's very important um, to have call recordings, to have reps going through your system, the phone system, rather than their their cell phones for a long period of time. And, and having those call recordings on inbound and outbound calls to really understand what's happening. Yeah, just two important points I'll, I'll reiterate is one, a soft phone requires them to be at a laptop to use appropriately. So it removes the ability of a rep to answer the phone at the grocery store or while walking their dog or while stuck in traffic. It allows them to, they have to be at the computer, focused on the call, putting the correct information into the tracking system. And so just super important. I think everyone should use soft phones. It should just be a requirement unless it's like you said, you know, the really small provider that's got the BD rep doubling as the call, <laughs> the call agent, which does have to happen in the beginning sometimes. The other one is outbound calls. I mean, when we first started working with call centers and treatment providers, no one did outbound calls. Nobody. They just sat around. They waited for the calls to come in. They followed up on VOBs, obviously. But if it wasn't a VOB, nobody called back. It's crazy. Crazy. Yeah. So yeah. talk a little bit about what results have you seen from providers implementing outbound calls? Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely a head scratcher for me uh, being in this industry for a very long time, the, the contact center space for a very long time. You get inbound calls. I mean, you're you're a blended call center, meaning inbound and outbound. You get inbound calls, you get inbound leads. You're when when in the absence of inbound, you're dialing outbound. You're dialing those leads. You have spent marketing dollars to drive that lead in and to let it just sit in your CRM is um not a good use of time or dollars or spend. So uh it's it's it has to be intentional and the 
with how people set up their outbound calling, because I think it can be a lot uh, overwhelming at times. So you can't do it kind of ad hoc. You can't be like, well, when we're not busy, I'm going to run this report and it's a thousand records and hand it out to the team. That becomes overwhelming. And then people are not going to want to do that. And then you're not going to get good results. But if you're able to create an automated follow-up cadence that happens that just sends out, hey, you know, all the leads that you created, if you don't hear from them in seven days, it's going to just remind you to call them. So it just becomes part of the workflow and the normal every day, like, yep, I handle my inbound calls. And, you know, when there's not inbound calls, I'm dialing my outbound calls and I'm just doing my follow-ups. And this is, this is the lead I need to call today. And it is going to generate admissions from for you. And it's not right away. I think the thing that people have to understand about the outbound is part of the outbound is you just keeping your name top of mind for this person that reached out previously. You may call them for six months and they are not ready to come in. But when they do decide to be ready, the fact that you continue to follow up with them and they have your name, they're more likely to call you. They're more likely to reach out to somebody that has kind of imprinted themselves and their brands on them that they connected with. So it's it's not it's not I'm going to make a bunch of outbound calls and just get a bunch of admissions today. It's it's more of a long game, um, and you should be able to get see some admissions from that. And again, your team should be doing this in absence of inbound. So there's no inbound calls. There's nothing else you'd be doing right now. So why would you not be doing revenue generating activities based on marketing dollars you've already spent? Right, right, and you can convert one to three percent of those outbound calls. Absolutely. So if you get 100 calls a day, that's one to three admissions a day through outbound that people are, are missing out on because they're not connecting. And you don't have to do all of that yourself, right? I mean, like you said, there's automated processes to do the dial out on there. There's automated text messaging follow-ups. There's AI integrations for text follow-ups. You know, there's a whole lot of stuff that you can do to take some of that weight off your team and just have them focus on the call. 100%. If you're working with a, a marketing company or uh, you have internal marketing that can run email campaigns and do different things, just you're marketing to, you know, it's database marketing. You're marketing to the leads you already have and you're continuing to do that. So yes, calls and voice can be part of it, but you can also supplement with those other touches and just making sure that they're they're just see they they know that you're reaching out and you're there, you know, until they kind of tell you like, hey, leave me alone, stop, stop calling me, you know, until they yeah. until they do that, uh, I follow up. It's it's you have to, you have yeah. to, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Something that I think people find challenging. You know, I always say on, on the sales side, you know, the the data numbers generally say you have to follow up with a prospect seven times on average before they move forward with a, a purchase decision. Most most sales reps follow up like two, maybe three times. And it's the same thing in a call center. They just feel like they shouldn't be following up that much. But the reality is that that's what works. And that's really important when you're talking to someone that's been struggling with addiction for 10, 20 years, doesn't want to come into treatment. They, they need a little bit more prompting. They need a little bit more encouragement. It's a very valuable behavior to help them get connected to care. Right. Absolutely. I mean, everybody that calls in is not coming to treatment right, right, that time, right, that you're not going to convert every single call. But what are if they're not coming in now, and they're not ready now, what are you, what are you going to do then? Like, what's your plan next? You know, you, you've got to continue to, to connect with that caller. Right. 
So let's shift gears a little bit. Big question that we always get. What about late night and weekend calls? Should we staff for that? Should we do a third party answering service? What's the solution? So it depends. I I would definitely say it depends. Um, I'm absolutely a fan of answering solutions and behavioral healthcare answering services to help folks with their missed calls and after hours. But it's going to make sense. Again, it's the right fit for the facility. It's going to make sense. So if you after hours, you don't, let's say you're day parting your marketing, you're not running a lot of advertising, you don't get a lot of organic calls after hours, you're not getting a lot. It's probably not going to make sense for you to pay to staff that. That probably doesn't make sense. And you can have whatever calls come go to an after, uh, uh, like a missed call answering service. Um, that would That would make sense. If you're a very large provider and you have a lot of calls 24-7 and you have a large staff, you have 50 people, it's probably going to behoove you to staff that overnight. Now, it's not easy. The overnight is the worst thing to staff. It's the most difficult thing to staff. But when you talk about that first call that comes in, the best possible chance you have of converting that call is for them to get on the phone with one of your reps that can take it as far as they possibly can on that first call, right? And if you have that, if, if you have somebody else taking those calls or it goes to a voicemail during those times, that's not really what's happening. But it's, it's a trade-off. It doesn't really make sense for everybody to do that and to staff that overnight. But for larger companies, more than likely, it's going to make sense for you to have a few people. And maybe you have the overflow go to an answering service, but it might make sense for you to have a few people like a skeleton crew on that overnight and after hours. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that's the right way to look at it. You know, small providers, you might not even answer calls on evenings or, or sometimes weekends. Once you start getting a little bigger, then you need people at least answering that, you know, bringing in a call surface, staffing it. And then once you're large enough, you absolutely just need to be covering that volume. Even if there's a low probability of someone admitting it's still important to have people there and just I think it's part of the brand promise. And from our perspective, yes. right, once you get large enough, if you're a huge treatment provider, I expect you to answer the phone. I mean, I, I know I don't go places if people answer the phone, like I'll switch dentists or even banks or something. And if they don't answer the phone, I'm going somewhere else. Uh, tr absolutely. And treatment is absolutely the same way. What about outsourcing the whole thing? So we talked about a little in the beginning, but I do get that question from time to time. It's like, could we just hire an outsourced call center instead of hiring people in-house? Yeah, I actually was just talking about uh, that with somebody right right before this. So um, I think, again, I'm, I'm just going to keep saying it depends. It does depend. I, I believe, I've never, as I said before, I've never been able to get an outsourced provider to perform as well as my internal call center. Yeah. Whether it's a cultural thing, whether it's a proximity to the actual corporate office and like how you feel the actual culture of the company and understand things. It's a lot of things going. There's a lot going on there. So it has to be if you, one, if you're going to outsource it completely, there it can't be just, I'm going to outsource this. It's somebody else's problem. And I'm not, not even going to pay attention to it. That's huge red flags. Not a good idea at all. Some you're still going to have to hire or have somebody internally that their main job is overseeing that vendor. Like they should be on top of it and making sure that that vendor is running appropriately and doing everything that needs to be done um, and training and all of those things are happening. You need to make sure that that's that's going on. And 
depending on where you're looking to outsource, like if you're doing something offshore or near shore, it's gotta be worth it on the cost saving side. Like there is going to be a degradation of results. And so if you can make up the difference, if you're you're saving enough cost that you can lose that revenue and still come out ahead, then that might make sense. However, even if it's financially, like financially speaking, it does make dollars and cents. I feel like there is an intangible uh, cost there. And maybe it is tangible if you could calculate it somehow, but there is an intangible cost there to kind of, like you were saying, the brands, what are, what are you, what are you giving up by having, you know, um, not and no on-site call center that really knows your program, that really knows what's happening, that's really in tune with what's going on. And again, you could have a vendor be try to be very in tune with it, but there is something on that patient experience side that are are they going to get? If you're just looking at it as a cost savings, I want to do the cheapest possible. You're not really looking at it from a patient care standpoint, and. I don't know exactly how you'd be able to calculate that and what the loss is there as far as that, um, what that would look like for overall the brands, a ripple effect, people coming back to treatment with you, all of those different things I think it impacts. So it's it's definitely something that you have to look through and analyze very, very carefully and weigh the pros and cons of that. And I've gone into call, I've built call centers in places I've pulled out because it didn't work out. I've gone to different places. I mean, it's it's a lot and it's a lot of work and and it takes a it's a lot of complexity and it takes a lot of thought, um, uh, a lot of thought and planning to make sure you're doing the right thing for for the company. I would definitely be a stronger of an opinion where it just doesn't work from what I've seen in the behavioral health space. We've had people try it. Um, I can tell you right now, there's just a fairly large private equity firm that just sold a bunch of facilities and they were trying to outsource their call center. And that's what they'd been doing and everything fell apart and they lost a whole bunch of money. We've seen it a lot. We've seen it a lot where people are trying to outsource call centers, especially smaller providers, or even back in the day when you had these guys building facilities left and right, and then everything was going to some outsource call center or some call center that wasn't integrated with the facilities where it was kind of like a standalone entity. We've just never seen it work. I'm not saying it can't. And I, I think there were own experiences with like Google. I mean, I literally have Google and Facebook both blocked on my phone. And that's just one number, like 15 numbers, because they call me from all these different numbers all the time. You know, and they're they're calling to supposedly help you with accounts or some kind of BS. But in reality, they're just people based in India that are talking through a script and trying to get you to spend more money. And it's the most frustrating, annoying thing in the world. And the same thing on the support line. If we ever have to call it and have an issue, we've got these agency reps, but we always have to go through a first line of customer support before we're able to get them on the line most of the time because they're so busy. And it's just a terrible, terrible experience. So it just totally destroys any interest that you have or, or faith that you have in that company. So I think that's that danger that you're talking about is I've got this one chance to connect this family or this patient to care. And if it's that one chance is with someone who doesn't really know my organization or can't tell why my organization is different from the one across the street and doesn't have emotional investment in our mission and in what we're doing, then the probability of them connecting with that patient appropriately is, is low. Right, exactly. All right, let's go a little bit deeper into structure again. 
So splitting roles. So some call centers, you know, back in the day, there used to be this screener closer thing, and you can still find it in some places in Florida. Uh, but they have one person that kind of screens for appropriateness, another person closed, or they'll have a general admissions rep, and then they'll have a handoff to a care support specialist or a finance specialist or someone to handle like backend logistics. What's your thought on that staffing structure? I think there's something to be said for specialization of skill. If I am the finance person and I know the financials really well and I understand benefits and I can speak to people about their financial, you know, their patient responsibility and I can do all of that really well, I probably do it better than the person that's trying to do a lot of different things. However, it it gets difficult when doing that and splitting those things up creates a longer process for the patient to get care and more people that they have to talk to that maybe might make them feel a little bit uneasy about it. Like I called one, I called and I got, you know, an initial opener or screener, and then they told me somebody else is going to call me back. And so now I'm talking with that person who's the closer, you know, the, the, the person that I'm going to work with, uh, the coordinator. And then now they've passed me off to the financial person. Now I'm talking to three different people and that it may create a little bit of confusion. It may be like, well, I keep getting passed off and I just want one person to talk to. I just want to talk to the one person that I need to talk to. So if it causes any of that and pain points and friction in the patient journey, that's where I start to get a little bit worried. It's, Again, it's the specialization of skill. I, I I understand that, and and especially parsing off like administrative, like back end administrative type stuff. I, I'm a fan of that. Getting the admin work off of the hands of the reps and allowing somebody kind of behind the scenes to be doing that and doing a little bit of coordination, so the reps can really focus on speaking to the callers and getting people the help they need while the kind of administrative stuff is happening behind the scenes. There's also, um, you know, something that I think we see a lot of, and there's a, a mixture of these things is the the reps, quote unquote, owning a lead, meaning like this is this is my lead, I created the lead, I'm working with this family and seeing it all the way through to admission, versus everybody just kind of works everything. So there's those two different approaches there. And it's nice to have the one person see it all the way through, just like I gave in that example, being passed off might not be what somebody wants. However, when you get to a certain scale, it's very difficult to keep doing that. It's very, especially for the long-term follow-ups and things like that. People are off. They have weekends. They're not there. You need to make sure that people are getting followed up on and that things are still happening and processes are still moving forward, even if that person isn't working and that person should be able to get two days off, you know, and work a 40 hour week. So the other people do need to kind of pick up for and help that person. There's a lot going into it. And usually in a normal uh, call center environment, everybody works everything. That's how it works. It's not, it's not efficient for people to kind of quote unquote own their stuff. It makes more sense. When you're talking about large, 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 millions and millions of records, it makes more sense to have things um, be called by by numerous people. But, you know, I I really don't know that I have a super strong stance either way. I really don't. That's one area that I, I could go either way. I could make the case for either way. But and, and, and it depends. 
I think you're right. The complexity gets to be too hard. I mean, if you're taking 60 admissions a day, like some of our clients, then it's not realistic. You're going to have that patient that was a morning call and it's getting into the evening and they're still figuring out getting off the plane or they're still figuring out rides or, you know, whatever the case may be, you can't just let that linger. You've got to hand that off to the next rep and so that they can follow up that conversation and make sure that that patient's getting safely into care. So I agree with you. I think it does depend, absolutely. But at the same time, uh, larger, more complex, just makes more sense, like you said, to to be hand hand off. And you can start, which leads us in the next question, you can get into some advanced AI routing and stuff around that where you can get people calling back and going to the same rep. We talked about that with Carl Fisher on one of the previous podcasts. So looking at some of that setup and kind of wrapping things up there as we approach the end here, what about tiering the team and doing any kind of advanced call routing through backend AI systems or just the way that you guys have the routing set up so that certain people take certain calls? That could be taking you know high value clients and private pay clients, or it could be taking union calls if you have a special contract, or it could just be the people that convert the best taking the highest quality um, inquiries. What are your thoughts there? Absolutely. The With a large enough team, yes. I would say yes, doing call routing in that way, which can be done. Some of these larger enterprise contact center solutions do all, this is, this is norm, this is the normal. Um, but some of the smaller providers, our CTMs, our call rails, CTM specifically, I definitely know that they have some call routing options. So you can do some unique things there and try to you know, say the, the same rep answers the call that got the f- call the first time, or it'll try that person. It's hard to do that when you have a small team, because it sometimes it won't even matter. If I have three people on the phones and you got me the first time, but then now we're all on the phone, like you're just going to get the next available person. It's not smaller teams that matters a lot less because there's a lot less variance in what could happen anyway. But with large enough teams... I do think that there's something to be said for for the business. There's a business case for, well, this marketing channel is my highest converting channel and these reps are my highest converting reps. So wouldn't it make sense for me to match both of those things up? Absolutely. From a business perspective, 100%. There's also something to be said on the flip side of now you're holding reps accountable for different things. If you're now sending good calls to your best reps, they're converting more. Now you have to start measuring people on sort of a sliding scale of how many, you know, what your conversion rate could be because now I'm sending you lower converting calls and those are tougher. Now the, the, the reps that don't do well are getting the tougher calls and are they going to do worse with those? And also... You should be looking at your bottom 20% and figuring out how you're going to improve them and how are they going to improve if everybody's kind of got this skewed delivery system. So in theory, it 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 would work out where you put your highest converting stuff with, with the highest converting reps, but long-term solutions, you need to be, everybody needs to be doing a good job. Like you just need to have solid reps that can execute across the board. Yeah. Yeah. I think one way to work around some of those challenges is to have different titles for different roles, right? You know, you can have a junior rep, mid-level rep, senior rep, and they do have different KPIs for them as well as different pay structures based on it. And then within that tier, 
if they start to perform well, then they get promoted to the next next level. So it's an incentive for them to improve and then get the better quality calls or a little bit easier to convert the higher salary based on that higher position. But you're right, it does create more complexity in the organization and makes it a little bit more challenging to manage on a number of levels, especially not even counting all the all the technology and the tech stack you need to build on the back end. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, some of that stuff is actually not super difficult um, to do those things when you have different campaigns or different sources and you can route them to different people. It's not actually not as complex as, as one would think. Um, if you're using really advanced stuff, it, it would be. But if you're just trying to do a very simple, like I want all of my Google ads PPC calls to go to these reps, you can do that fairly, fairly simply. But again, I, I think there's the the part of the lower performing reps getting the tougher calls, yeah, it might it might make them better. It also might make your worst performing channels even worse. Yeah, and yeah. that's, you know, uh, that that's something that you have to kind of figure out. But it's really, call centers are incredibly complex and it's always a moving target. It's figuring out what you need to be doing differently and working really, really hand in hand with marketing, whether that's an agency or internal team. To, to really be kind of playing this, uh, you know, game of catch. They're throwing, call centers catching and really doing it in a way that works. Yeah, I think I harp on it all the time. There are best practices that work a lot of the time or things that need to be in place. But at the end of the day, a call center is like any other part of your business. It's not paint by numbers. You can't just right. say, hey, do these things and it's always going to work. There's strategy, there's good leadership, there's training and support, and there's all the million decisions that you have to make a day that makes a successful call center or, or makes an unsuccessful one. And so it's a lot more than just having some kind of roadmap, which really doesn't exist. Spot on. Any final thoughts, anything we didn't cover that you want to really bring up? I think, you know, just kind of thinking about again, the scaling and understanding if you're growing that you need to be thinking about is what I'm doing today possible with more people and setting up your reps for success. So what am I doing today that won't work with 30 reps? And do my reps have everything they need to do the best possible job that they can? Whether that's putting information in front of them, like knowledge bases, giving them tools all in one place. You have to really think about it just like we want to think about it from the patient experience, we want to think about it through the agent experience. And if we can make that really great, they're going to be able to provide a good patient experience. So it's super important to look at it in that framework. Yeah, it's a great way to end it. I always talk about the value of integrating systems. And I, I don't know if I've talked about it on the show, but we've had experiences with pretty large providers where we've cut their call volume in half from a marketing standpoint. We did a lot of things on the SEO end to prune off bad, bad content that was generating bad inquiries. Same thing on the paid media campaigns. It was going to the wrong audiences. It was the wrong message. And so they had all these calls coming in that were just very poor quality and very highly unlikely to go anywhere. It was just burning out reps left and right. You know, so just because the marketing was bad, instead of doing 10,000 calls a month, they were doing 20,000 calls a month, 10,000 of which were total crap. And so once you cut those out, they actually had a 30% increase in admissions. And we did that three times, you know, so it's, it's so important to understand how your, your systems integrate. And then, like you said, the, the impact it has on your team is super, super important. 
So if someone wants to contact you and learn a little bit more about what you offer, how, how can they do that? I am very active on LinkedIn. So I would definitely search me up on LinkedIn. You can also email me at M as in Michelle, Santagata at SantagataConsulting.com. If you don't know how to spell that, uh, just go search me up on, go find me on LinkedIn. You can find me. <laughs> and shameless plug there. You got fantastic LinkedIn posts. Love your LinkedIn, follow your stuff all the time. And I will also just say that, I mean, you know, you've worked with us on a couple pretty big projects and phenomenal. So Michelle's amazing. I highly recommend reaching out to her if you have any call center needs. And she's also a bit of a Salesforce guru, which we didn't even get into. Yeah. Thank you so much, Nick. I really appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. So for everyone out there, this is Recovery Executive Podcast. Uh, this, I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, and we'll see you next time.